It's one thing to be part of a hotshot startup in Silicon Valley, counting your stock options, wondering when you're going to retire after the company goes public, that sort of thing. Nice dream anyway, right? But that story has been repeated many, many times in Silicon Valley. Internet entrepreneurs, tech bubble magnates. The bank accounts survive even if some of the companies do not. Mark Cuban, he's a rich guy, having the time of his life long after selling the long-forgotten broadcast.com to the maybe soon-to-be-forgotten Yahoo. But it is the rare story of success in the digital revolution that not only generates money, but also sets in motion deep changes to the culture, to language, altering the way human beings interact on a fundamental level and on a planetary scale. People want to go on the Internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles? I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. This is the Facebook story. And whatever happens to the stock price of Facebook, the company and the social network it created has forever changed us. And it is this change that Catherine Lossie observed as Facebook's 51st employee, as Mark Zuckerberg's ghostwriter. She observed an insular world of tech wizards from the inside and then felt she had to escape that world. In 2010, she decided to return to the real world. She quit Facebook, left a network of 900 million people to go live in a small town of 2,000 people in West Texas. Catherine Lossie now lives in the town of Marfa, where she works as a writer and makes friends the old-fashioned way, face-to-face. The Boy Kings is her memoir of that heady time at Facebook where creating an online world eventually supplanted any traditional notion of privacy. I think for me it was a a sort of situation of just observing some of the drive to bring our lives online in this way, which is the drive that many startups in Silicon Valley are are kind of engaged with. Um, But then, you know, as a humanist, as an English major, as someone who doesn't come from the technology world, I had questions about that. Um, Like, how safe is this? How how much do we want to live our lives digitally and online? Is there a way that we can um, resist that to some degree and say, no, there are certain things that I want to keep offline that I don't think I want to do digitally? Um, these are the questions that I, that I was asking throughout that experience and that I ask in my book. And I don't really have the answer to them, but I think that there are questions that we should all start thinking about. And as someone who has a, a feel for literary narrative, um, there was an element of Facebook that was fundamentally unique, and that is that you also were changing the language, changing the way people's minds work in a certain way. As, a, as someone with a feel for literature and character, did you see that earlier than maybe some of the engineers did? You know, I probably perhaps was a little bit more sensitive to that and to the way that we were changing people's human lives. Um, a lot of the way that Silicon Valley thinks about growing a product like this is um, in terms of scaling and becoming very large in terms of users and ability to support that with the servers and so forth. And I was thinking often about how it was tr- transforming our personal lives, you know, how suddenly um, you had to worry about a story showing up in newsfeed, informing people of things that you maybe hadn't yet told them in person. This was something that prior to Facebook we wouldn't have even conceived, and suddenly this was a, something that was possible and, and was happening every day. What was your original metaphor, or what were some of the metaphors that you used to think about what Facebook was? Uh, was it a street corner? Was it a water cooler? Um, was it a club? What do you think was going on for the people who used Facebook, and how did you use a metaphor to kind of help you understand what was going on? Yeah, I think some people thought of it as, as a kind of like a hangout spot, and it is kind of a virtual hangout spot. Um, 
sometimes it seemed to me almost like a newspaper in that you have this kind of readily um, automatically updating newspaper about your friends and about what's happening in their world. So I think there's a lot of different uh, metaphors from the real world that you can use um, and apply. Um, And probably many of them do apply because the site is so big and does function in so many different ways now in people's lives. But for all of those metaphors, you would have to add a, a hangout zone that is completely and totally capable of being scrutinized on every level by Facebook, right? In terms of... Privacy. Of, it's a place where... Right. I mean, where that's, that's the, the nature of our online lives now. We, we, we record so many things digitally that, you know, the definition of that is that they are recorded. They are online somewhere. And of course, these sites have privacy settings. They have, you know, administrative settings to keep that information um, secret to some degree. But that's, I think, a question we have to ask about, you know, any site that we use. All of our interactions digitally are recorded somewhere. But what made you most uncomfortable about the access that you could have to uh, users potentially or in actual fact? I wasn't really uncomfortable with my access. Um, I, I felt like I wasn't in the practice of wanting to invade anyone's privacy. It's more that these sites, the way that they function actually sort of requires them to know a lot about you. So um, it's not just Facebook, it's it's Google, it's all of these these technologies do things like, you know, putting cookies on in your browser that kind of collect some information about, you know, what you're doing. And they use this to kind of try to help improve your experience on the site, but it also means that they have information about you. Um, and I think that that is something that's, that's widespread in technology, um, and especially in social technology, and it's something people should be aware of. You've written uh, social websites were playing upon the biggest open and unsolved wound in our society, the need to be known, the need to be loved. Do you think that makes people vulnerable in this social network in ways that we're just coming to grips with culturally? I do think that the big difference between social technology and something like you know hardware is that it does play such a big role in our personal lives in a way that I don't think we're really – been able to think about quickly enough um, to understand it as it's been happening because it's been happening so fast. So I think that's something that we have to think about now. What does it mean to conduct so much of your life through a phone or through the computer? Um, Does it help you with your relationships? Does it make them better? Are there ways in which you want to limit that um, or transform that or renegotiate that to make your life, you know, as satisfying personally as it can be? I think these are things that are just so new that we haven't had time to really pay attention and think about them. And that's that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. You know, one of the really smart scenes in this book, The Boy Kings, is your description of why you decided to go to Brazil and, and what it was you were, uh, in, in a sense, escaping from and the reaction of your colleagues. Can you tell that story? Right. So this is in 2007 when I go away for three weeks without any – Technologies and without my computer. Um, no, you I basically described. Felt, I mean, that that is basically equi- the equivalent of you know being unvaccinated or something uh, you know, in, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a smallpox ward. I mean, your your colleagues could not believe you were going to go to Rio. I guess it was right, right. I was sort of taking myself out of this very controlled world in Silicon Valley, where we spent most of our time in the office, most of the time on our phones and computers. Um, sort of managing the world digitally, and I just said, "Nope, I'm going to take a vacation for three weeks. I'm flying to Rio de Janeiro." 
I'm not bringing my computer and I'm just going to immerse myself in, you know, this carnival atmosphere, you know, where I can't control everything. I, I can't manage who I see or who I talk to. It's just I'm throwing myself into this very colorful, very live, very musical world. Um, and I really needed that at the time. I, I had been so immersed in, in the technical that it, it was it was time to have that kind of very unprogrammed experience. What did it feel like? And then what did it feel like to come back? Well, I loved it. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Brazil. I'd been there before. Um, and, and that's something that there's just this, this life there that, that is just wonderful. Um, and then I came back and I noticed that I was just much more, I was much calmer. I was um, just, you know, more gregarious than I had been when I left. But it's sort of, that started to move back into the very calm, controlled, programmed um, personality that you kind of have to have when you're working in this, mm. in this very programmed world. If, if Facebook could realize Rio uh, virtually online, they'd really have something, <laughs> I think, is the lesson here. All right. Uh, finally, before we go, is Mark Zuckerberg more boy or more king? That's a great question. I think, I think he's a bit of both. I think he's, he's probably, you know, he's maturing. He's growing up. We all are. Um, but, you know, he is kind of the king of this world at this, at this point in time. Catherine Lossi, former Facebook employee, author of the new memoir, The Boy Kings. She's a writer living in Marfa, Texas, and joined us from the studios of Marfa Public Radio. Catherine, thanks so much. Thank you.